All right. We're rolling now. Exciting. Gonna count us down. The corporation wants a sample. Oh, yeah. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Missing Out. I am Tari J. I am Lex Michael. We're the retrospective that's introspective. There we go. Uh, What we do here is we introduce each other to different art, whether it be music, movies, television, artwork, as in paintings. Sculpture, uh, perhaps. Word, yeah. Um, And other assorted things that people have used to express themselves. We talk about how it has affected us and how it helps us express it in life and then we share it with each other and and we discuss it and then we look back on it and as we get retrospective and also introspective i absolutely followed that in part thank you that's all i needed i needed some of it (laughs) (laughs) oh geez um So, so all right what are we doing this week this week i already know that i'm asking it's a it's a question for the benefit of everybody else right i don't yeah. want you to think that i showed up that unprepared <laughs> stop showing people how the sausage is made <laughs> um today we're talking about uh alien engineers which is the original script for the motion picture uh prometheus which was slash is a prequel to alien yes uh that's fair so i wanted to right off the bat because this was your suggestion i would have thought of the two of us i was the bigger uh fan of these these newer movies in this alien prequel cycle yeah but this was actually something that you suggested right up top i'm curious why you suggested that we take a look at this screenplay um it is one i feel like it is very exemplary of how things change from the original inception to the final product, which I think is a really interesting view into kind of like how the industry works and like how the, the thing that you write might not necessarily be the thing that you see. Um, but also beyond that, I thought it was a really well-crafted screenplay. And like I was a big Alien fan and I felt like this script really was a perfect prequel to Alien. It definitely feels more directly in line with the original movie than what Prometheus ultimately became, for right. sure. Um, a tiny bit of backstory about this screenplay. Uh, so one of the things I did as homework was I read the screenplay and then I jumped onto, I own the uh, three-disc Prometheus Collector's Edition Blu-ray that's got, it's like the Blu-ray 3D, which I can't watch because I don't have that technology. Right. Uh, but it's got the Blu-ray and then it's got the bonus disc, which has this three and a half hour massive making of the movie, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, but on the movie disc are a couple of commentaries and one is a commentary by John Spates, who wrote this draft of the screenplay, the original draft, and Damon Lindelof, who came on and redrafted that screenplay later on and I think was the one the the writer that was more directly involved when it entered uh, production, production officially yeah. uh, Spates was brought in uh, originally had, he took a general meeting at Fox and it had nothing to do with Alien they were talking about a bunch of different potential projects and at some point th- whatever uh, Fox representative he was talking to brought up this this idea of you know we we're trying to figure out what to do with 
Alien. We have no idea where to take the franchise the way we took it. Uh, by the time you get to Alien Resurrection, it's all that whole world is so dang weird. I it, they found it a little bit difficult to take the franchise forward in that direction. Mm-hmm. So this idea of a prequel came up and John Spade said, you know, I had no real ideas for what an alien prequel would be. But as soon as I started thinking about it, all of these ideas started to just pour out of me and suddenly it made perfect sense. And he wrote some stuff down and he left it behind in this meeting. And as a writer uh, in the industry, like that's a big no, no, you don't leave stuff behind in meetings because you're essentially, you're giving away something for free. Right. Uh, On top of which, if they like that idea, you've now, completely handed it to them and they could take it from you and run with it if they really wanted to go that way. Yeah. But his reasoning was, you know, well, it's, it's like a, it's a Ridley Scott thing potentially. Uh, so, all right, I will, I will make an exception in this case. I will leave a little piece behind. And apparently they really took to it so much so that in short order, he was sitting in front of the heads of Fox having this meeting and mm-hmm. he was tasked with writing what at that time was very much like you say, intended to be, a very straightforward and direct prequel to the original movie. Yeah. And so that, that happened and he got like at least uh, five, six drafts in the one that has been released online is about the like fifth or sixth draft. Um, It's the draft right before, or it's two drafts right before Damon Lindelof took over. Um, And Damon Lindelof was brought in specifically because um, Ridley Scott was kind of thinking the, the story was missing something. The Fox executives really were uh, trying to steer it away from uh, the whole, like have like the xenomorph aspect of it. Well, I know Ridley Scott talked very publicly too about uh, his feeling that that monster, great as the design is, as iconic as that, as that monster is as an antagonist, he had felt that it pretty much had run its course. He's like, I right. don't know how to make this. How does anybody make this that scary? There are plushies of this. How scary can we feasibly make this? So I think that was his inclination as well, is yeah. to try and maybe move it away from being so reliant on those elements. Yeah, and so they basically sent it to Damon blind, and they were like, just tell us what you think. And his main, uh, as- his main, I guess, uh, feedback, he's like, I like the world building, I like the set pieces, but I feel like it relies too heavily on the alien aspects. And so then from there, they had him like write another draft. He, it took him like three weeks or so. Um, and he essentially just started scaling back all the xenomorph stuff. And his, his thought and his idea about what was intriguing was David because he was a creation that was with his creators who were looking for their creators. So he's like one step removed from their create from like the original creators, but he is in fact better than his creators. You've got this wonderful concept that exists in the final movie, this exchange between David and the Holloway character, which essentially boils down to uh, you know, you meet your creators. What if it's, what if it's a huge disappointment? And David, having met his creators, knows how it feels to be utterly disappointed by the people who birthed you in the first place. Yeah. And then we've talked a little bit. I think maybe when we were talking about Blade Runner, I used it as an excuse to talk a little bit about the David character because he shares a lot of traits with Roy Batty from Blade Runner. Yes. But essentially, he is a character who 
is disappointed with his creators, discovers that he is so much more powerful than they are, sees himself as superior to them, then plays God himself by taking this weapon, this biological weapon that was created by the, this gets convoluted, created by the creators of his creators, and he plays God and turns it on his creators. Right. Which is... Uh, essentially what the engineers were planning on doing with this biological weapon was going and wiping out their own creation because they were like, well, all right, we tried this. This didn't quite pan out. Yes. And you mentioned Blade Runner, and that was actually one of uh, Lindelof's biggest influences when he was looking at the script and kind of trying to suss out how he could highlight this android aspect. He looked to Blade Runner because it was a Ridley thing, and he he thought like he could find a way to meld the two and in, enhance the like engineer aspect of it. And ideas like that are why, in my estimation, Prometheus is far from a perfect movie. I think there are a lot of pretty significant and obvious flaws uh, that it has, but I think it is vastly underrated, specifically because of these massive. Uh, heady ideas that it puts forth. I think the stuff that Ridley Scott is clearly the most interested in uh, shooting for or accomplishing in both Prometheus and Alien Covenant, I think both movies pull off excellently. It's a lot of the elements around these big ideas where things start to feel a little choppy, a little uneven, and I think a lot of that in the case of Prometheus uh, is the result of uh, the groundwork of Spate's original script because much of that stuff is still there in the final movie mm-hmm. um then being saddled with a, a lot of uh baggage in the form of these grandiose ideas with intentionally dangling threads and i don't necessarily i call it baggage but i don't necessarily see any of that as inherently bad or negative i just think it leaves you with something of a weird fit yeah i mean i feel like f- from reading the script and seeing the final product, it feels like someone created a machine and then this machine was given to someone else without any real context. And they were like, all right, I'm going to take a look at this and just started kind of like pulling out wires and connecting other wires. And and to the point where like the machine still worked, but it's not the way it doesn't work the way it's intended. It's not a, it's not a, perfect machine in the way that I would argue at least comparatively having read the original draft the original draft within itself I think is a bit of a better functioning device than the final product despite the final product uh, essentially completely solving my single greatest issue with the original screenplay which is of course that script does not have anywhere near enough David in it for my personal taste now (laughs) what David we do get is great and there is one truly excellent scene in the screenplay that did not make it into the script that i thought was phenomenal and i'm referring to the scene where david very coldly and very intentionally uh places a face hugger onto the shaw character yes that's an incredible scene and i wish that scene was in the final movie i think the way we get to the the self-surgery and the med pod in the movie still works but but like dude like more david everywhere just more (laughs) david all the time and honestly i of course i can't sit here and say that i would absolutely feel that way were it not for michael fassbender's performance as this character across two movies informing my perception of what's in the script right 
but I can, I can only come at this script from the direction I can come at it from. And that I kept thinking, I was like, this works very, very well. Where's that robot at? <laughs> I, uh, from, in, from my perspective, I feel like the David that we got was good enough in that, not good enough, but like, I feel like it was just enough in terms of the script. Um, to where he was a slow burn. He was kind of planting all these seeds, and then you see him get more and more menacing as things go on, as he discovers things, as he shows himself that he's more self-sufficient. Um, it, it really like makes him into the final threat, as opposed to, uh, I feel like in the movie, he was a threat from the very beginning, and it was just a matter of like everyone else realizing it as he's slowly destroying their lives. Well, you realize, especially after you see Covenant, it it retroactively informs Prometheus in such a way that you realize uh, in a big departure from this original script, David is essentially the main character of both of these movies. Right. Whereas, exactly, in the original script, it's very much focused on the scientists and David is very much this answer. He essentially, he's not dissimilar from, say, Ash in the original film. It's just, he he does become the primary antagonist in a sense by the end, whereas Ash is uh, he's dispatched in relatively short order once he starts flipping out. Right. Yeah. Um. And so I feel like I I like where David ended in the original script in that he 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 did all these really like brutal things, and for him to like be I'm making air quotes like forgiven by the end doesn't track as well. Oh, you mean in the final movie? Yes. Okay. Um, cause in the, in the movie, he, uh, she like gathers his body, she gets his head and he's like, I can lead you where you need to go. Whereas like in the, in the script, she, he does the face hugger thing and she refuses to fix him. And there's this moment in the movie where he acknowledges that he caused, um, Holloway to become infected. Like there's this moment where uh, she's like, you don't know if, if it was airborne and he looks at her and he goes, it's not wink. <laughs> yes. um, and so like there's that moment should have been the moment where she's like, I can't ever trust this robot again. Right. Which try, I mean, at the end of Prometheus, she takes his head, but the way I read it in the final movie is that she knows in the position she's in, she's not going to get very far without, uh, it doesn't, if she had another robot on hand, I bet she would have picked that one, but she probably needs a synthetic with a certain skill set to help her get too terribly far. Right. I didn't necessarily read it as she, she intended at the end of Prometheus to reattach David's head to his body. I don't know what happened in the intervening period between Prometheus and the start of Alien Covenant. We don't see, we see bits of it, yeah. but really only after David had been put back together. I don't know what their relationship became that ultimately led Shaw to the objectively horrible decision to reattach David's head to his body. <laughs> he does, and spoilers for stuff that happens on screen in between movies, that doesn't end well for her. Right. But that's less of a problem I have with Prometheus. It's really less of a problem that I have with either movie. Yeah. And more girl, what were you thinking? That specific thing is a function of the movie itself in that 
they the change from Watts in the in the script. Oh yeah, so that's something is, we should we should hit real quick. Like the the Shaw character in the in this original script is uh, essentially the same character, but the name has been changed. Her character in this script is Jocelyn Watts. Yes. Also, uh, Vickers has a different name, isn't it? Lydia in this script. Um. Yes. And, and then she's the, Meredith. Meredith and, in the yeah. final film. Don't um, don't know why those changes were made. They, they see, but I guess Lindelof maybe came in and was like, "I don't like Jocelyn's." This is my <laughs> that sounds nothing like Lindelof. I've heard him speak long enough or and enough that I I I know full well his voice doesn't sound that way. That's his written voice. Yes, yeah. when he's when he's writing, that's his inner monologue voice. Right. He always thinks to himself, "I am David Lindelof, and I don't like Jocelyn's. <laughs> I like smog beasts, and I don't like Jocelyn's." I'm reading his like his his dating profile. Yes, yes, I. Mm. So we were talking, we, we, I, I, I forgot you reminded me that I had an, that like something Lindelof had mentioned, like made me upset. Okay. Um, it, it was in one of his, uh, in one of his interviews about prequels. Can I really quit before you even say this? I do want to say maybe this will help dovetail into what you're about to say. Yeah. So I listened to a good deal of the writer's commentary, as I mentioned. Yeah. Spates and Lindelof are recorded separately. Uh, I don't think that's an accident. You could say it's scheduling, but I have a feeling without, I can't speak for John Spates, but I have a feeling he's not overwhelmingly thrilled with some of the changes that were made despite being a professional. He knows that's how the process works. Right. Um, listening to Lindelof's side of the conversation, Lindelof introduced a lot of concepts and and ideas and elements into the movie that I think are legitimately really fascinating. The way he, a lot of his writing or his earlier writing that most people are familiar with, in my opinion, I think he needed to get a slightly better handle on, if not tying off all of the threads of these ideas, because I'm totally open to ambiguity in art and storytelling, it just feels like in a lot of cases he didn't necessarily have a full handle on the meaning and significance of all of these ideas. Yeah. And I feel like you don't have to lay out every bit of it for your audience, but I think it's probably pretty important that you know the meaning and significance behind all of it. Yeah. Case in point, and then I'll, I will uh, uh, cede the floor to you. The title of the movie, Prometheus, was mm-hmm. apparently his idea, was something he pushed for. Thematically... I think that's a brilliant title. I think that's a perfect title for this story, in yeah. fact. Uh, Spate's draft has a reference to uh, Prometheus stealing the fire from the gods as an example of how profound a leap forward uh, this potential discovery would be. Yeah. On the commentary track, Lindelof explains his push for the title to be Prometheus as such. I just thought it would be really cool. Yep. And no disrespect it is he's not wrong yeah but i i was a little i was like is this a is this a put on of some kind like how is it how do you not realize that that was a brilliant choice beyond just the aesthetic coolness of it that like tripped me up a little bit so does that have any even tangential connection to what you were about to lay out um yes for the most part like i feel like there was a lot of intention in spate's original script and I feel like Lindelof came in and was, for the most part, he, something you have to remember about Lindelof is he lives in the Abrams world of mystery box storytelling. Right. And in, 
the mystery box is only really an effective tactic if there's something to unpack in the mystery box. Right. I feel like, okay, so here's what I will absolutely say. I feel like, and I know I'm not alone in thinking this, um, I've only seen two of the three seasons of The Leftovers, but what I've seen is A, incredible, B, an indication at least to me that Lindelof has finally gotten a handle on that balance in a way that I hadn't necessarily perceived prior to that. Interesting. All right. Maybe I've seen like three episodes of leftovers. It becomes a, almost a complete, it does like a, almost like a self reboot in the second season. Not, it doesn't abandon the continuity of the first season, but it almost reinvents itself as a different show. And in season two, that's when for me, I went, Oh, this, this is excellent. Interesting. Um, and I still haven't seen the final season. So I, I probably, what I'm probably going to have to do one day when I have time is start the show over from the beginning and just do the three seasons over a couple weeks or something. Yeah. But okay. So I like ran away with it again. <laughs> so, uh, JJ Abrams mystery box school. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So, um, something that in one of his interviews, he was talking about, uh, specifically about this movie is how boring he finds prequels. He was talking about how, in a prequel, your main purpose is to connect dots and you can't tell a story. Um, I think that is true in many cases, or at least when you're hired by a studio to write a prequel, that's what they want you to do, which does, I, I get the logic there. They want to tie it to the thing as directly as possible to the thing that was already a big success. In their right. mind, that translates to... Uh, almost a bit of an insurance policy. Yeah. But what you're effectively doing is you're shackling the hands of your creators. And that's not a great way to approach telling a story. Interesting. Well, I I beg to differ, though, because I feel like there are a lot of like, yes, there are specific things that you need to make sure are like in line with the previously established, um, I guess, canon. But like, it doesn't mean that your story has to like carry the other things on its back. I mean, everything can be tendentially related. Like the thing that I liked about Spate's script is that it, yes, it had face huggers and it had xenomorphs, but it also introduced the beluga morph, which was used later in alien covenant. Um, and it also, it's the, the like squid one. Uh, and then did you call it the beluga morph? Yes. That's the, that's the like established online name for that. Is that something that they, that they like the, the creators came up with, or is that something that the fandom named either way? I love it. <laughs> um, I don't remember, but I mean the, the concept is cause it's like, has, no, Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, no. I get it. That's brilliant. Beluga morph. <laughs> I love it. Go. Yeah. So yeah, they, he introduced the beluga morph. He introduced the, uh, the, Ultra, ultra more. I think was it ultra more for Uber more. Uber, I, yeah. I forget. Um, so like even, even within the confines of the canon, he was able to splash around. But like the story wasn't about that. It was about the engineers and what their purpose was. Right. And I also like the idea because like focusing specifically on David and. Uh, Yes, David specifically is an interesting concept, um, but I feel like I really enjoyed this idea because I like stories that make uh, make it. I guess I, I like nihilistic stories sure. in a way, and so like I like this idea that at a certain point, if you've ever uh, had a garden, sometimes you'll get you'll, sometimes you'll get ivy, 
and or you'll get uh, those thorn vines, mm-hmm. uh, but they also have berries in them. And I like the idea that humans were part of this just garden that the engineers were tending to. And then at some point they were like, oh man, our, um, the thing, our produce is getting out of hand. We need to just get rid of it and just introduced a biological, uh, or plan to introduce a biological, like insecticide, essentially. Um, that to me is more intriguing than the idea. Uh, I mean, than the like Android stuff, mostly because there's a whole nother movie franchise exploring that. But I think all that stuff is still there. And I think, I mean, okay, so it's definitely a departure. And I agree. Prometheus in its final form almost does feel like two movies in a sense. It feels like all of the David stuff layered over uh, the engineers and the origin of humanity. Um, Maybe it is only because I'm viewing this as well all through the lens of having seen Alien Covenant and seen the ways in which they took those ideas, those those same ideas, and then I would argue melded them together very, very well in the next movie. Yeah. I think that is informing a lot of the way I'm approaching the Prometheus story in both versions. Like, I was uh, not anywhere near as much of a Prometheus defender as I was, bef- uh, as I am now, before Alien Covenant came out. Right. Because I it didn't, not all of it tracked for me, I think in a vacuum, Prometheus still has a number of strengths. Aesthetically, it's an incredible movie. Yes. Um, the performances are uniformly excellent. I think it has a lot going on as far as the ideas and, and the story. It just doesn't all sit that well together until even just figuring out, okay, the main story is about David, or at least the rest of what's happening, we're actually experiencing through David's POV. Mm-hmm. A lot, of, for example, a lot of the issues people have with the perceived lack of intelligence of some of the characters in both movies makes a lot more sense when you realize that if there's a POV character in one of these, it's the robot who thinks of all of the people as incredibly stupid. Right. Um, I really like, even though I, I get that it wouldn't have uh, tracked with the version of the character as played with Michael Fassbender by Michael Fassbender to um, express it verbally in such an on-the-nose way. I really like in the screenplay that he's just openly mocking humans, being like, you're you're so stupid. (laughs) You are all so stupid and slow. I I really liked, from a, like, sci-fi standpoint, I liked that, like, you were saying him calling them out, and also that he was not, like, fully human. Like, the way they describe him is he is just, like, humanoid. And so, like, all these scenes where you're seeing him looking through the engineer's, uh, I guess, looking through the engineer base, and uh, he's you can tell that he's seeing something that they're not. There's There are these moments where you can imagine his face, and there's nothing there, but there's, like, a slight hint of curiosity. Yes. And that's something, there are remnants of that in the movie, but they don't really explain it the way they explain it in the script about how like much of what is there in this uh, massive installation that they find, they're not able to perceive the way the engineers were able to perceive it because they have, you know, even just the goggles, they have uh, technology that makes it easier for them. They also, their physiology is separate from 
ours. They, they perceive things in their environments that we are not capable of perceiving. David, being in many ways more human than human, is able to perceive things through his mechanical eyes in a way that more closely resembles the way that engineers are able to see things. Mm-hmm. And I think that, too, is a really interesting idea. Yeah. Like, he, ha- he is, and it's very... It really is, then. It's, it's pretty on the nose in the script. He is uh, far more godlike than we are. He is able to understand their language. He is able to understand their technology. He is able to see things the way the engineers see them. Right. Our creation being more like our creators than we are. And, like... I love, I really actually, I like this idea because you can track it to any kind of uh, philosophical uh, uh, debates about theology in our world, which is essentially, did we create God in our image or did God create us in his? And I love the fact that uh, this duology has it both ways. Mm-hmm. God's, God, you know, the engineers created us essentially in their image and we created a more godlike being than us in ours. I think that's cool. Yeah, that is awesome. Um, so I feel like we've gotten this far and we should probably... I, I, I want to talk about um, kind of some of the major differences. Yeah, because there are, like I was saying, a lot of what's there, at least in the broad strokes, in the original script is still there yeah. in Prometheus. There are a couple of big sequences that have been shifted. There have been a couple of things taken out, but most of what Lindelof did was was add a bunch of things on top. Right. But yeah, what did you what did you want to hit First, like right off the top. First, uh, I guess the the sm- I want to hit a small one in that. So they they switched Holloway's character from being an older, like forty eight year old man to a younger douchey dude. <laughs> douchey uh, dude, Logan Marshall Green. You don't like you don't like Logan Marshall Green. I I'm sure he's very nice as like a person, right? But like the way that the character existed was so in the in the the way he was written. There was like a, a meekness and a sophistication, whereas like the way that they had him on screen was more like he. I could imagine him being like archaeology on Monday, windsurfing on Tuesday. So, right, right, right. It's the difference between like the Holloway in the script is more of like he's the he's the older academic true believer, and I do I. Yes, by comparison, yes, Holloway <laughs> in the movie is is dude bro scientist. Yes, yes, which I I. I had an issue with because like part of the thing that got you invested in this trip and, and, and like the whole expedition was that like, it was the passion project of this loving couple. And you can tell that they had been working at it for like years and years and, and years. In the script, don't they allude to uh, Watts having been one of Holloway's students? Yes. Which adds uh, and weird, it's played as completely non-creepy. Like at no point did I find that odd, even though when they first said it, I went, hmm. But <laughs> it, it does play as a genuinely loving, committed, passionate relationship where they almost, they have these same convictions, these same beliefs. It really does feel like they've found a, a true match in each other. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say immediately after that, though? Oh, just just that. Essentially, just that the fact that it's not played as odd, weird, it adds a really interesting wrinkle to their relationship that is not present at all in the final movie. Right. Uh, so I just, I feel like we lost a little bit in, in just that little shift. Um, because in the final movie, again, like I don't, I don't really have an issue at all with Logan Marshall Green in the film, 
but it feels very much like standard Hollywood. These people are in a relationship because they're pretty. Right. And I also feel like it took a little bit away from the Shaw character in that, like, how do I explain it? I Um, think I might know the direction you're moving in, but I mostly want to watch you struggle and flail to move in that direction. Okay. Um, Go, just do it. If you say it and you feel really (laughs) gross about saying it immediately afterwards, we just cut it. Okay. Sounds great. (laughs) Um, No, well, I feel like in... In the, in the original script, she, they were equals. Like, she was specialized in biology. He specialized in archaeology. And together, they, like, were able to put this together. But in the movie, it feels like he is all about it. And she's just kind of tagging along. And, and it, it really, like, removes a lot of her agency in that it feels like she's kind of humoring this dude but also, like, able to use her skills while she's doing it. And it's a bummer. Okay, see? And that's a that's a much more refined way of putting it than you made it seem like you were, you were going to attack it from. See, that's good. See, look at, look at that. Bravo. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, yeah. Uh, it, it just, it lacks, and I, I wouldn't have known this, of course, if I hadn't read the script, but it lacks a, a number of layers. And I hadn't really thought about it in terms of it removing agency from the Shaw character. But yeah, I think there's definitely an argument to be made there. And it even if they had just left Holloway as the older man, something about it, it now, now granted, if that's the only thing they had changed, it may have felt even weirder. But at <laughs> least then it would have felt more like they committed real hard to a choice. Right. Yeah, this uh, that would have been that would have been icky too, though. That would have been icky in a wholly different way. But at least it would be icky in a way in which I think there'd be more to talk about. I guess so. I guess. Um, so another like the big change uh, that between the the big change between the script and the movie was the big reveal in that uh, in the movie. The like big reveal is that Waylon wasn't dead, right? And he is essentially looking for a way to be immortal through the engineers. Um, in the original script, Waylon is just kind of like a—he's just a rich dude who likes to spend his money on whatever he wants. Um, but he's also a dude who is has a specific aspect of his company, which is terraforming, that is failing. And so this is a chance for him to advance his terraforming technology. Right, much like the what what the Wayland Corporation would later be in the original movies once it partners with the Utani company, the Wayland Utani Corp is the big faceless corporation. They always want a sample of something and the entire impetus behind their every move seems to essentially be find whatever new technology biological or otherwise that they can, use it to their advantage, not not even for power necessarily, just for money, just to continue to line their pocketbooks like corporations do. Yeah. And it's, it's exactly Wayland only has, I believe one scene in the screenplay. Yeah. And it's the scene where he goes, yeah, no one's going to finance this except me (laughs) y'all. And it's not because he's intellectually curious about any of it. Real. He might be, but that's not really why he's doing it. He's doing it because he wants to use this to make money. Right. Whereas, yeah, in the movie, it's much more personal for Wayland. I'm sure that he would turn it into a money-making venture if he 
could, but it is largely so that he can find a way to beat death. And you get a, a performance by Guy Pierce. It's a great performance, but the whole time he's in this preposterous old man makeup. <laughs> Apparently the reason that this is, because you'd wonder if all your Guy Pierce, great actor. If all you're going to do is throw him in the old man makeup, why didn't you cast an older actor? Right. And apparently it's because there was a sequence that came in a later draft of the script where David talks to Wayland, but in what I understood to be a, a sort of simulation where you see Guy Pierce. I think they talk, he like takes a, it's like a simulation where David gets on a yacht and is, I believe maybe is well, like taken a to dream. a beach type area. So like he, um, he talks to Waylon through his dreams, and Waylon is always on a yacht surrounded by women. Right. So yes. there, and that's when, although if it's a robot's dream, you could argue it's essentially the same as a simulation. Uh, What's Waylon's dream, though? And of course, it's Waylon would be like, I'm going to be young, and I'm going to be on a boat. And I'm going to be with women and but I'm going to get laid. Well, sh okay, sure. I like the, by the way, I like the like big arm um, movements that yes, you're making. That's what I do. I like, I like the image of Waylon like flexing back and forth while he's doing all of this. But I would still, I would still argue if he's able to patch David into his own dreams somehow, <laughs> you're essentially functioning within a simulation of sorts. Fair a dream enough. is in a way simulated reality. Um, point being in these sequences released the one sequence that we know for sure was in one of these drafts uh it's guy pierce it's like guy pierce like tanned bronze like 40 year old man yeah that i think was why the, and you see him in there were some viral clips where you see like peter whalen doing ted talk type things where it's guy pierce as guy pierce yeah but that's that's why they cast a, a younger actor than this this fossil of a man <laughs> um but then before even shooting it i think they cut all of that stuff yeah uh, the other element of it, too, is that uh, Vickers in the final movie is his daughter, which is something that does not exist in the draft of the script yes. that we are talking about. Right. In the original script, Vickers was essentially his right hand, and she was set to be the next to inherit the company once he was done. So uh, essentially, she was just like his COO, uh, chief uh, operations officer, for those who don't know. Um, but yes, but she got sent on this venture, uh, and she's which pissed about her. it. Of yeah, of course, because she knows that by the time she gets back, all of the groundwork that had been laid for her to take over the company would just would be gone. She would have right. been away from it for too long. So yeah, she's super not pleased to be there. Yeah, and I will say that like in in the movie, so in the movie, yes, uh, Vickers is his daughter, and she has somewhat of a rivalry between. David because he is essentially uh, the Wayland's perceived son and he seems to not really give her any credence. Credence is the word I'm looking for, right? She doesn't give I'll her... I'll take it. Yep. I know what you mean. Doesn't give her any credence. Um, and so there's this dynamic that is hinted at. It's revealed a little bit too late for my taste, but like... it In the movie, it does. By the time we get there, it... I think it's more the placement of it in the movie. I think if we had gotten that piece of information somehow a little bit earlier, it may it would have felt more organic possibly. Yeah. Because it does feel when we get to it in the movie that it comes a little bit out of nowhere pretty late in the game. Yes. And I feel like it would have really helped us inform Vickers' character and her point because 
Vickers is a character like Charlize Theron is an incredible actress and she right. totally sells every scene that she's in. But it's really hard to track where Vickers is coming from because you don't even get uh, the broad strokes that you get in the original script. You just know that she's in charge of this mission and she's really grumpy. Right. And if we had gotten that little bit of information, even midway through the movie, it would have fully explained what she's doing there, what her stake in this is and why she's so dang grumpy all the time. Yeah. I would, I think the perfect placement would have been when she was having that struggle with David in the hallway and he could have been like, daddy's not giving you what you need. And then like, and even then you could have interpreted it in you. either way, like his dad or her dad. Right. But yeah. Whereas in the original script, Wayland is not on the ship at all. The The secret uh, beings that are being hidden on the ship are like uh, Vickers, like private security squad, mm-hmm. essentially. And that feels... It tracks for me, especially when you wanted to make a movie that felt more in line with the alien movies that have come before. It it totally tracks that there might be a couple analogs for colonial marines in this thing. Yeah. I read it and I was like, this works for me within the context of this story in the script, but I don't miss that element in the final movie. Right. I mean, yeah, it, it made it feel like they were combining a lot of the aspects of alien and aliens um, so that they could have these really tough expendable characters by the end right you know because because you wanted a little bit more pew 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 than maybe would have existed otherwise right and it's it's well known that ridley scott not a fan of the pew 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 no he just Um, he's what i took me such a long time to figure out and i mean this in the best way possible Ridley Scott's a weirdo and he's not into like he's not into the exactly he's not into the pew 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 of it all that's Cameron's bag and that's why Cameron made a great aliens movie that was pretty much all pew 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 yeah that's why he made that movie and Ridley Scott didn't right um once you are get so uh xenomorph face hugger uh, monster heavy you you pretty much need some people to roll up with machine guns or your movie's over pretty quickly. Yeah. Once you pull all that stuff out, you you don't need that element because it essentially becomes a story of ideas more than it becomes a story of man versus monsters. Mm-hmm. And this brings us back to the idea of Lindelof's issue with prequels and why, though I think the Alien Engineer script would be a really great, totally serviceable direct prequel to Alien. The pl- the planet that they're on in that script is LV-426. Right. Which is the planet from the original movie where they find the juggernaut with the space yes. jockey in it. I don't need all of it to be that directly tied to the original movie, much like some of the ancillary Star Wars stuff now, I find myself wondering what is the purpose of these if not to expand the universe? If you keep uh, stumbling upon the exact same locations and same uh, characters, same creatures time and time and time again, I feel like it only serves to make your world feel smaller. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, if if Ridley Scott got to keep making these, which uh, he probably is not going to because Covenant did not perform all that well, that's a whole other thing, by the way. Like, I get that that movie would, would be a really hard thing to figure out how to sell to general audiences, but they sold a movie that it wasn't right. at all. That didn't help. But if he got to make one more of these movies and they did finally tie it directly into the original Alien, it, it would essentially be a story about the long-term evolution of this uh, living weapon. 
and I think it would work okay, but I never at any point felt like I needed it to connect to Alien at all. I was totally game, even before Covenant came out, and I felt much more positively about it as a whole. I was totally game to accept it as a completely independent entity that just shared some iconography and DNA with the Alien movies, which was essentially what Ridley Scott kept saying it was mm-hmm. in advance of the movie's release. Right. I... I get what you're saying. I just, I feel like. I see where you're coming from. I just think you're a dumbass. <laughs> um, no, I just, I I feel like if you're going to make a prequel, um, you should, and especially a direct prequel, which is what it was supposed to be. Um, I don't know. I, I would prefer to say uh, what it was originally intended to be. Right. Sorry. It's original intention. Just because by the time they went into production, I don't know that it was supposed to be a direct anything. Right. But yes, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I just, I feel like it it served to answer the questions that you had from the original movie in somewhat of a fulfilling way. Like the main things that you come away from Alien with is, you know, what is this space jockey? Where did the aliens come from? Um, what are the eggs? Like... What, how, whose beacon was that? And that is essentially what this movie served to do is give you more context. And it's, it also makes that initial beacon from the original alien. It makes it something that when you go back and watch it, you realize it's a super tragic thing. And that in, in, you realize that essentially no one ever came to pick up uh, Watts. And you realize that she essentially spent the rest of her life playing chess with this robot until she died. And then years and years later, this salvage crew came and ended up getting infected by the same thing that her husband did, which is a bummer. But we do essentially get we don't we definitely don't get that in this version of Prometheus, but we do still get a lot of that when you get to Alien Covenant, because she ultimately did suffer a similar fa- actually i would an even darker bleaker you were talking about how you love nihilistic stories yeah. i would think alien covenant would be very much your bag because, oh i'm into yeah, it yeah because what ultimately happens to shaw is so much darker even than that right um but i i totally get what you're saying and i i actually i agree completely as far as if you really were hoping for answers to those questions, then yes, the the Alien Engineer script certainly does a better job providing fulfilling answers to those questions than does Prometheus, even when viewed through the lens of Alien Covenant. I, for me, here, okay, here's where I absolutely uh, come down on the side of Damon Lindelof. I agree, even though, yeah, I think it's pretty important that the storytellers have some idea in their minds of what all of this stuff means what the answers and significance uh, are. I've always thought that the questions were so much more compelling than any answer that they can give us. So I was never, it's not that I was never curious as to say who the space jockey was. Of course I, of course I was, I was painfully curious, Yeah. but because I was so curious, I accepted that no answer they could ever give me was going to be as exciting as, the question was right. So I was never really looking for that. Same, okay. The same way, like, I don't know what this Han Solo movie is going to be as of this recording. We still haven't seen a trailer and it's only a couple months out. I know that on paper right away, not that it can't surprise me. It never once occurred to me 
to wonder like where Han Solo got his vest. It never once occurred. We know enough, for example, about how Han Solo won the Millennium Falcon. Won it from Lando at cards. That's it. I don't need that much more information than that. I feel satisfied. And a couple of things I don't know, I could speculate for eternity. I could tell my own stories in my brain till I drop. Right. And I'm not opposed to the answers, but having these questions answered to me, I think, takes away from some of the wonder of it. Okay. So I I got about as much resolution on the space jockey as I feel like I needed to from this movie because like we, I mean, they pretty much told us explicitly what the space jockey's deal was. I didn't necessarily need the sequence of events to tie directly into the original movie. I, I felt like I was given enough information to go, okay, well, uh, yeah, we didn't get there, but I totally see how we could get from here to there. Yeah. And we're not so beholden to that original text, but we do know now the space jockeys created humanity. Essentially. I mean, that's to me, that's a lot of closure yeah. on that without, you know, how did that specific juggernaut get, right there where did that specific beacon come from in fact knowing like it makes it 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 strips away some of the feeling of um ominousness is that a word how yes. do you how do you put ominous into the correct tense for this context um it makes it less ominous to me because we know now right you know what i mean like the same thing it's like how uh you know, in, in a horror movie, what you don't see is oftentimes, if not always, scarier than what you do see. What you don't know is scarier than what you do know. Right. That's that's ultimately where I come down. And I, I do agree if they had made the Spates draft, if that's the draft that they had shot, I don't think I'd be sitting here complaining at all. I think we don't get from that script to Alien Covenant, and I think we'd be all the poorer for it. But if they had made that script, I w th there wouldn't be an alien covenant for me to be predicating my entire viewpoint <laughs> on all of this on. That's true, but there's still elements of what we get in Alien Covenant in the original draft. Right, and I think a lot of the really interesting things that that you are referencing is stuff that you really liked that you missed in Prometheus. I still think we do get in that next movie. Right. Not well, all, but a lot. Yeah, and that's... So that's my issue is not issue. It's just that's my brain thought different than an issue. That's my brain. That's thought. my brain thought is that it required them to make two movies that essentially did what one movie did or one script did. Yes. Yes. And no, because that's true. It took them two movies to incorporate uh, most of the really cool ideas from the Alien Engineer script. But it's not like that's all those two movies did. I would argue that both movies, if not accomplished quite a bit, more certainly introduced a, a far greater variety of very grand ideas yeah. than just the elements that we're talking about. And of, of course, again, like I pause just to reiterate, I'm well aware that neither Prometheus nor Alien Covenant, it, are, they're not at all perfect movies. They're both big, messy, oftentimes unwieldy things. Right. But we don't get we don't get movies about big ideas made on this scale for this much money anymore ever. And unfortunately, the reason we don't same thing happened this same last year with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. People aren't really showing up for them yeah. anymore, which is a massive bummer because all that means is we're going to get fewer and fewer of those.
but that that for me is why like yeah i see how how messy and unwieldy they are but these ideas these so like i want i want more of it i want more weirdness i want more like really big budget massive scale weirdness yeah and i get that along with all of the the nihilism and the bleakness and the the uh what's the word the fatalism there we go the fatalism of it all that exists that i think spoke to both of us in this original script mm-hmm. so yeah like in there's a there's a world where this uh script was made into the final product and i think we're all totally happy with it i don't know that there'd be this much to talk about necessarily i guess so Do you know yeah. what it is it feels so tidy and that's not a bad thing at all. In fact, I, I think in, a, in many, many, many circumstances, that's exactly what you want. And, yes. and it speaks to what you were saying about how you feel like it answered the questions in a satisfying way. Keyword in that in that statement is satisfying. Clearly, it, it worked for you. Yes. For me, and again, again, I can't separate my point of view here from the two movies that do exist. But it's so tidy by comparison. Right. And so I'm sure I would like it. I'm sure I would own a copy of it today if that movie had been made. But it's so tidy that I don't know that it would have given me that much to chew on. Something, certainly, because the, you know, the the man searching for their creator and creating something monstrous themselves uh, that then turns on them, that, that's still there in yeah. the script. But I don't know that my brain would still be ruminating over all of this stuff if that was it. If it was just that kernel at the center of the story as opposed to being essentially what the entire story is about. Gotcha. Does that track? I feel yeah, like that track. that makes sense. Um, and so this is a side question. Do you think that Spates is like mad all the time? Because he writes a bunch of scripts and then they get rewritten heavily by studios and then into something that people don't enjoy. So like he also wrote um, the mummy, the most recent one. He also, he wrote um, passengers. Uh, Like that was one of his original movies. Um, He did write Dr. Strange, but he was like a co-writer. This was him and um, C. Robert Cargill, I believe. Yeah. Um, So, okay. Do I think he's mad all the time? No. Do I do I do I think it's probably a bummer when that happens? Absolutely, but I think John Spates is a professional and that's just part of the game. When you're a professional screenwriter, what you have to accept just just comes with the territory is if you're lucky enough to get a gig, if you're lucky enough to sell your script, it's it's for all intents and purposes basically not yours anymore because what will happen especially at the studio level almost invariably is you give them your draft. Then they they maybe pay you for a certain, uh, you know, some rewrites. There might be a process that only involves you, but then any number of other writers, teams might be handed that draft and asked to do a, 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 a rewrite, or it depends on to what extent they rewrite. That determines who ultimately gets final screenplay credit. It all gets very... There are a lot of like different legalities and different factors that actually determine who gets credit for what when the movie finally comes out. Right. But that's all that's all part of the package. Now, what does happen sometimes is you end up getting brought back on at the end of all of that to do rewrites of the stuff of yours that was rewritten. And what will end up happening in a lot of those cases is that writer will just change the things back. (laughs) Point being, that comes with the territory. Right. So 
I'm sure sometimes he gets bummed when somebody takes a script that he's really proud of and does a whole bunch of things to it that he certainly wouldn't have. Right. But I got to assume he knows when he gets the gig that that is a likelihood, um, if not a possibility. It'll... I didn't phrase that quite right, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I got you. Uh, that's probably going to happen. So I hope he's not mad all the time. And if that makes him like incensed to the point where he has to take like blood pressure medication, <laughs> maybe he's in the wrong line of work. Or maybe the line of work needs to change. I mean, wow, wow. I mean, um, I mean. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, one other thing. This is also just a dumb side thing. Okay. Um, so there's this moment in the movie where um, Captain Janik, or Yannick, however you'd oh, like yeah, to pronounce who, who it. Oh, yeah, who is a very different character in the script. He's, an, he's basically like a Nordic dude in the script, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, this, this uh, iteration is played by Idris Elba. And I feel like there are scenes in the movie that feel different designed just to get more Idris Elba into the movie <laughs> and not, not for nothing who, who could blame them. Yeah. Um, there's this scene uh, and I feel like it's like an infamous scene at this point, but it's the scene where he kind of sexually harasses um, Vickers and then it works for some reason. Well, okay. So what part of that scene read to you is harassment? The part where you go, you, you looking to get laid you need to get laid. That's sexual harassment. That definitely that definitely counts. Yes. That definitely <laughs> definitely counts. Um, <laughs> here's here's what what makes it ever so slightly less skin crawly for me. And again, you you have to like actively view it through this lens. But he starts that conversation by asking her if she's a robot, and you might you might be able to go. You know, well, he's just being a jerk, and this is part of the same like negging sexual harassment thing. But I actually think, under the circumstances, that's a very valid question because we know that that this company, whenever you're doing company business, they tend to send synthetics. We know that Wayland has David cannot. It's unlikely that David is the only one of his kind, even if he's certainly the only one that operates the way David does. And not for nothing, Vickers does ever so slightly in her aesthetic resemble. David. Yeah. So I actually think it might be a fair question if he means it in earnest. And if he means it in earnest, even though, yeah, it's still harassment, it tracks for me a little bit better that he might be trying to poke at her just a little bit. No pun intended. I really should have chosen my phrasing better. <laughs> uh, it does track a little bit for me that he might throw questions like that at her to unsettle her and test her potential robotness. But yes, all right, that still definitely qualifies as harassment, especially yeah. because she turns out to not be a robot. Spoilers. Right. Yes. Um, well, uh, correction, he asked if she's trying to get laid before the robot thing. It goes, you trying to get laid? And she's like, I wouldn't have come all the way out here if I was. And he's like, are you a robot? And she's like, grr, I'm going to show you I'm not a robot. <laughs> come to my room. Um, okay. <laughs> you're, you're right, actually. Okay, so now that you mentioned it, yes, that, okay, that is the order of operations here. But still, I don't think that necessarily detracts from what I'm saying. That doesn't, that doesn't make it not harassy. It just informs it in such a way where it doesn't necessarily make me think less of Janik as a character. <laughs> it just, it, I, I just, it bothers me that it worked. But it also, like, if but you. But you concede it, it 
Oh, you mean that his his ploy worked, not yes. that the scene works. Right. Got it. Um I mean, I will I was gonna say there there is an aspect of the scene that does kind of track in that if once you know that that Vickers is Wayland's daughter, um, and that she is in this deep uh like competition with david then her being asked if she's a robot uh and her wanting to prove that she's not tracks which again speaks to i think her shared opinion that maybe they could have done with dispensing that piece of information a little sooner in the narrative yeah maybe because yeah that would have cast that whole scene in a completely different light right but what are you gonna do what are you what are you gonna do like what are you what what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? I mean, uh, Lex. Uh, I'm probably gonna probably gonna watch Lawrence of Arabia and do my hair that way. Oh, dope. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll post lots of pictures. That's of something it. else. I wonder, like, what at what point in the scripting process they they gave David a Lawrence of Arabia fetish? I don't know. I like it though. Like, yeah. you're, you're giving the shrug, like, I don't know, that's dumb. And I'm like, nah. I've never seen Lawrence it's, of Arabia, so oh, I don't know. It's long as shit. That's but what it's, I hear. But it's really, it's really good. It's the type of movie that I would recommend. I actually, I got to see it for the first time at the Cinerama Dome. See it on as big a screen as you can. It's got an intermission, so you'll get to, like, pee and, like, you know, get up, walk around a little bit. I uh, do that a lot, yes. I totally buy, I, I blame nobody for having a tough time sitting through it at home when there's a bunch of distractions. I would say if you could find a screening of it, go check it out because, yes, it's that good, but it's it's meant to be seen on a giant screen. Um, but no, I like I like that David, it and they, uh, they reinforce this in Alien Covenant, but David, unlike every model that came after him, is able to think creatively. And so I love that along with that would come an appreciation for art that yeah. that his successors would not possess. And I like that along with uh, appreciation for art comes in a way fandom. Like you could argue that that David is his own one man Lawrence of Arabia fandom. And I really <laughs> like like that's what he, he's got nothing to do for years when he's out in space by himself while everybody else is in cryosleep. Right. So I love that he like plays basketball on a bicycle by himself and he watches Lawrence of Arabia probably over and over to the point where he's effectively cosplaying as Peter O'Toole with that haircut. I really, I enjoy that. That, yeah, I like, I like what that tells us about David as a character without pausing the movie to lay that all out as verbalized exposition. Right. Um, Do you have... Anything else before we wrap this baby up? Oh, I'm sure there are a lot of different things that I ha- it hasn't occurred to me to say. Oh, different, like, too, we saw more in that opening sequence of Prometheus in the original script. Uh, we saw m- a more engineers communicating with each other in their own language. It was a little bit less ambiguous what was actually happening in that scene. Mm-hmm. This was another scene that Damon Lindelof altered because in his own words, he thought it would be cooler to not have them talk to each other. If there was a greater reason than that, like why don't you just tell? Why don't you just tell folks, Damon? Just tell people because he doesn't. Damon, he doesn't care. Damon, just scoot a little bit closer. Damon, just tell people. <laughs> just tell. Don't don't mystery box your commentary tracks, bro. Damon, scoot closer. No, his primary <laughs> his primary function in life is to make things cooler. Um, but okay, so I guess I guess the last thing I would say was I. 
I'm really glad that you suggested we look at the script because I think, A, it's a great screenplay. Um, even though it's not necessarily the version of the movie that I may have been the most excited about. Uh, and I think it's a fascinating exercise in, in like you said up top, uh, tracking how a document, how a blueprint, uh, how a blueprint becomes a house, essentially. Right. Um, I will... I will say again, I don't think either Prometheus or Alien Covenant are perfect. I don't think they're even close. I, I I really love both of those movies. And I say this as somebody who really would not say a syllable to defend Prometheus before last year. Yeah. And again, if it's not your cup of tea, like, oh, good gravy, will your mileage vary on Alien Covenant? I I dug it so much so that for me, it retroactively made Prometheus a stronger movie. It's a they're movies of ideas and they're movies about uh, a robot playing God essentially. Yeah. And if you view them through that prism, no, they're still not perfect. But I think they work incredibly well. Uh, I think all of the things that Ridley Scott was clearly interested in making these movies works like gangbusters. Um, having said that, yeah, I definitely recommend just to, just as an exercise, but also just as a piece of fun reading. Like, yeah, go check this script out. It's It didn't seem like it took you that much effort to track it down, right? No, not at all. Um, I mean, it's readily available. Um, Spates confirmed that it was his version. Um, I could even tweet out a link to where I originally got it. It's not illegal. It's just like a in a database of scripts. Um, so, yeah, even if you just Googled Prometheus original scripts or Alien Engineers, it's like the first, second, and third uh, links that you'll find. Yeah, I am super bummed that it doesn't seem like Ridley Scott's going to get to go back and make one more because, yeah, I, I not even that I would necessarily need to see it tie into the original Alien more because if, it, if it's not abundantly clear to everybody at this point, I am so enamored of the David character. Right. I just, I want more of, of him. Like, I was talking to my friend uh, Jay, shout out to Jay. What's up? I know he listens and he gets warm fuzzies when I shout him out. I was talking to him earlier Hi, today because he was uh, he was watching Blade Runner 2049 again. And we were both talking about how if, uh, Roger Deakins doesn't win the Academy Award for Blade Runner 2049, blah, blah, blah. We'll riot, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I said something to the effect of, dude, if I ran the Oscars, 2049 and Covenant would both be up for Best Picture and the ceremony would be so horrifying that people would cry in terror. David would host, he would release xenomorphs into the crowd, and when the screaming stopped and the dust settled, we'd know which of the Hollywood elite had been replicants all along. <laughs> That'd be dope. I'd watch it. Dude, I'll settle for Michael Fassbender hosting in character as David. Yeah. If I get the rest of it, so much the better, but I'll settle for that. <laughs> um, yes. I agree? Do I agree? Find out. Um, actually, I will say um, that if you're looking for more, um, if you're looking for more David, uh, someone did a, I guess you can call it a fan edit, where they combined a lot of the Prometheus and Alien Covenant David stuff into a singular narrative. Okay. Um, it's called Paradise, which was a previous version of that was what, one of the uh, previous names for, uh, for Covenant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it really like focuses in, it's like, I want to say it's two hours, maybe like two fifteen. Um, I can tweet out the link for that as well. Yeah. Um, I'd be, 
even even though I feel like that's the type of thing I'm not you're, I'm not supposed to encourage people to go watch illegal birds of duh, but it's, duh. it's I mean I don't know if it is illegal I think illegal it's just illegal bird FBI warning this bird is illegal but no tweet tweet that at me yeah I mean I think technically it falls under like a common use thing in that you are using the the aspects to make something original um fairly original um but yeah i think that that is it's because it's basically a, a different exploration it's what you were saying where everything is essentially through the eyes of david um so they also use a collection of deleted scenes and some of the promo materials in it as well so i want this <laughs> um i yes. want five of them in a world where they're making five Fantastic Beast movies, how are there only two David movies? <laughs> May, I, I think maybe in like five years, Ridley Scott would be like, you know what? I am old and I'm going to do what I please. But Okay, by the way, and this doesn't really have anything to do with the script. This is just something I've picked up from listening to a lot of interviews and commentary stuff with Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott is not only a big old weirdo, he just does not give a shit. And oh, what, yeah. I, what I mean is, of course, he clearly gives a shit as a craftsman. What I mean is, he's talking about, um, I listened to his commentary on Prometheus a while ago, but he was talking about when he's making a movie, especially now, at his age with his resume, he would get a lot of pushback occasionally on certain decisions and his attitude about it essentially boiled down to i'm ridley goddamn scott i have multiple movies in the library of congress how many movies in the library of congress do you have that's what i thought leave me alone (laughs) and i love him for it because he's right yeah um oh the other thing minor point that just popped into my head um i adore the score for both movies Mm mm-hmm also doesn't really have any direct tie to the script, but I thought I would throw it in since I assume this is my one of my last shots to have a focused conversation about these movies on this show for a little bit. Yep. That this doesn't is your mean last I'm, chance. That does not mean I'm not going to reference David anywhere that I can. It's true. He talks about him constantly. A lot. Um, so for all the stuff that we tweeted out or all the stuff that we will be tweeting out, make sure to follow us at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G. O-U-T-C-A-S-T on Twitter. And you can also follow us on our personal Twitters. I am all over social media at the Lex Michael. And I am at Tari J. That's T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. You can also find us, and by us I mean the Missing Out Podcast, on all the major podcast platforms. We have iTunes, Google Play Store, Stitcher, Podbean, Uh, And tell your friends if you go on iTunes and leave a comment uh, and also a number of stars, hopefully five, uh, we will read it here on this show uh, and give you a sweet, sweet shout out. Um, So make sure to do that because that helps us get to the top of the charts, which helps other people find it and helps us keep making dope material. You know what I'm saying? Uh, And also... Isn't that like a young adult series? What? His dope materials? Probably. Um, at, at, at me. Send me the title. Um, but, and also, at Lex Michael about your thoughts about um, 
Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Don't at, at him all don't, day. Don't at all me with day. your bad takes. Um, at me with positivity. We can respectfully not not align fully, but don't don't at me your your anger, your negativity. I ain't here for that. At, <laughs> at me with. And you know what? If you hate Prometheus, at me about something you like. Oh yeah, do that. Um, so again, we're here every Tuesday. So make sure that you subscribe to get our show in your feed. Uh, it mostly comes out sometime in the early morning, uh, except for last week when it came out sometime in the afternoon. Um, so cool. Uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Pudding morph. It's the pudding hugger.